It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And Chris Warnowski is back in the house. I'm here, Chris Quinn, with him and Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon for another discussion of the big news of the day. Let's get started. What's the good news for people working from home but still having income taxes taken out of their pay by the cities where they no longer are going to work every day? Jane Cahoon, this is an issue that I love to talk about because I just don't see how any city can collect income taxes from you when you're not working there. And yet this has continued for damn near six months. What's the new news on this front that might stop that collection of taxes? Well, if it if this goes anywhere, it it will be good news for, for people like you and me who work at home. The Christina Rogner, who's a Senate Republican from Hudson, has introduced a bill that would repeal this provision. Uh, and that provision was part of a coronavirus relief bill that the Ohio legislature passed back in March. And it requires employers to withhold municipal income taxes based on the employer's principal place of business, even if the employee hasn't stepped foot there in, in months. And, and as you know, many of us were required to work at home uh, when the coronavirus pandemic hit. So, you know, we've been continuing to pay taxes to cities like Cleveland and so forth, but this would just repeal that totally. Well, and look, let's put this in perspective, right? So, so come September 10th, roughly, uh, people will have been working at home for half a year. That's one and a quarter percent in Cleveland, one and a quarter percent of their income because Cleveland taxes at two and a half percent. So when people think about how much money this is, that's a one and a quarter percent raise. I, I just don't think there are many people that are going to feel charitable to giving Cleveland that kind of money. Uh, and this is this. I mean, this would stop the collection of it separately. There are efforts being made to claw back what's been paid. Right. There's uh, a lawsuit going on that was filed by the Buckeye Institute, a conservative policy organization that's down in Franklin County Court. Well, and the wording of the law that allowed them to keep collecting it, 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 it you could argue that it allowed them to keep collecting it. It didn't say they get to keep it. It just said, right. to, you know, they wanted to avoid a paperwork nightmare. They can keep collecting it. And then if you owe it or don't owe it, it would be resolved with with filings. I know that there are companies spreading out forms to employees saying, hey, here's how you get your refund. I think Cleveland's going to fight providing that refund. But uh, but this bill would at least stop the collection of it going forward and make it a finite amount. 
Well, Rogner was pretty clear. She said the intention is to make sure that the tax revenue goes to the municipalities that are providing the services to the people. And if somebody is living and working in their hometown, um, and if that's where they're spending their time day and night, that's where their tax revenue should go. That's her intention. It's that simple. And, you know, she doesn't she doesn't have a co-sponsor yet, but she, she is a Republican in a Republican-controlled legislature. But I'm just wondering how much pushback or um, whether she's going to get anybody to support her bill. That <laughs> <laughs> The pushback will be from Democrats in the big cities, and they got no power. Right, so. but the <laughs> Chamber of Commerce, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, was the one that asked for this provision in the first place to make it a little easier on employers during this pandemic when they were faced with all these other problems as a result of it, just to make it easier for them to, you know, keep withholding the tax the way they were, they were doing it. But she's just like, you know, Hey, the cities have had plenty of time to adjust. Um, and that's the way it should be. Yeah. I, I mean, I, look, it gets back to, I mean, her, she's got a point. If you're working full time in Cleveland Heights, Cleveland Heights, you get your taxes. And the second thing is, if you're not working somewhere, they have no claim on your money. I mean, it's it's just always been kind of preposterous. It's why we've talked about this as often as we have. But interesting to see how it goes. We'll be paying attention, of course, this week in the CLE. Why does Cleveland.com's Doug LaMaurice say that no school will suffer more than Ohio State University because the Big Ten canceled fall football for the year as a result of the coronavirus? This has been a big story this week, Laura Johnston. Uh, it's dashed the hopes and dreams of players and coaches. Uh, the Big Ten finally said this is unsafe. We can't put our players in jeopardy of this illness just to play football. They hope to do it in the spring. That's very questionable. But Douglas Maurice says no, no school is worse hit than Ohio State. Why and what's his argument? That's because Ohio State is primed for peak performance. As Doug said, this fall, they could have won it all. And even if they play in the spring, it won't be the same. We don't know if other big football conferences, say the SEC, are going to play. If they play and Ohio State waits, I mean, it's it's definitely just going to be kind of a disconnect there. And a lot of players are really angry. They wanted a season, as Lieutenant Governor John Houston would say. And their last national championship was in 2014. That's starting to seem pretty long ago. So they, they cannot recreate the team that they have this year, next year. They'll probably lose quarterback Justin Fields, who's a Heisman Trophy favorite, and a guy I had to Google yesterday when I was reading Doug's column. But uh, now people in the SEC are trying to get him back to Georgia. So who knows what's going to happen? Well, and Doug doesn't just make the argument that Ohio State is in a very good position because they're so good. He goes through in his piece all the other teams that might be contenders and how they're reloading or they've lost. They've had a lot of turnover. Uh, so so he really did think this would be Ohio State's year to uh, to kill it. Um, and, you know, you're right. There's a chance Justin Fields, if another conference plays, will go there. Although not long after the Big Ten, the Pac-12, I think, was the next one that canceled. And you're going to see others, I think, coming in line. What's odd is that the NCAA is letting this be a conference-by-conference decision instead of just saying, we're not going to have fall football. It's not worth risking the lives of college students so that we have entertainment. Uh, But the Big Ten is a leader. They were the leader in canceling non-conference games, and they were the leader in looking out for the the health of the players over the dollars and value. It's just funny the response some of it got, you know, 
like on Twitter, it was like, sure, they won't get, you know, coronavirus playing football, but they could sit next to so-and-so in their whatever class who went to a frat party with 150 people the night before. So, I mean, college is still going to happen. People are still going to be mixing. So it's going to be interesting. And and I, we should point out, this is all fall sports. So it's not just football. Nobody is going to be playing. In the well, future. once you kill the fall, fall football, there's no money to pay for the other sports. Well, that's true. But, you know, so you can't play socially distant tennis or horseback riding or synchronized swimming. So. Mm. This is Chris Wernowski. I can't believe you would make a statement that the NCAA w- would make it not make a decision based on the best interests of their students. You're talking <laughs> about a billion dollar organization that hasn't paid players in its history, and and yet you know they're they're going to make this decision. I I I don't know. I, there's just something funny about that to me. Can I You're jump listening. in here? Yeah, go ahead, Jinko. So uh, Sabrina Eaton in our Washington Bureau interviewed Anthony Gonzalez yesterday. He's a former wide receiver for both Ohio State and the Indianapolis Colts. And he's really upset about this decision and made the point that that Laura made a little while ago. And that was, you know, for some of these kids, this is their structure and their discipline. And he does think they're, they're more at risk you know, not playing than they are, you know, than they would be if they, they played because they're, they're subjected to rules and discipline. Whereas, you know, as Laura said, they could just be next to somebody else in a classroom or, you know, they off who knows where. That's ridiculous. I mean, to say, <laughs> to say that, that they're, they're, they're in more danger from not playing than playing because of the, the mental st- I mean, that's just dumb right i mean yeah, th- this is a contact sport they're in close proximity in the locker room the big 10 had a medical committee looking at it and comes back and says this is dangerous and he's making this kind of cockamamie uninformed argument i mean i, I read that story and just thought what are you what are you based <laughs> on everything the big 10 did is based on science I mean, they've been looking at this. They wanted to play. They've been looking at this and looking at this and just decided we can't keep the students safe. And here's a guy, an elected guy, you know, just kind of shooting off the top of his head. Nonsense. I mean, I'd love <laughs> to see where what the science is behind a statement like that. I mean, he's almost acting like Donald Trump, just oh, making stuff up. I can't wait for his reaction to <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we have a better idea of how a University Heights man came to parachute into the middle of downtown Cleveland, slam into a building, break his ankle, and need a rescue by firefighters after dangling for something like 20 minutes? Chris Wernowski, this is still one of my favorite stories of the week, and it's become even stranger with the idea that he may have not jumped from a plane. So take us through what we now know about this very strange case. Yeah, so this guy who has not faced any criminal charges as of today told police that he went skydiving and jumped from an airplane owned by a company called Cleveland Skydiving Center, which is actually in Garrettsville. And the owner of the center told us on Tuesday that the man used their services earlier in the day on Saturday, but that their plane was grounded during the incident that happened Sunday morning that saw him you know, get caught on a building and dangle there for a while. So, and her direct quote was, he did not jump from our airplane. It was here all night. 
So there's no real indication as to how he got into the air. And he claims he was trying to land in a, in a grassy area near Key Tower, which I can only assume is one of the malls. And he, he tried to land on Chester Avenue after one of his cords broke. So, But there was speculation <laughs> that maybe he jumped from a tall building, not from a plane, even though he claimed it was a plane. Yeah, so he would have been like, I guess the he wouldn't have been skydiving so much as base jumping if you want to get really technical into the into Ooh, the, I'm the, the parachuting that. lingo. But it, it's it's you know as of right now we don't know what he was doing. You know we know he's a former military guy who claimed he was a seeker. thrill seeker. But yeah. um, you know beyond that, there's no other. This no, is, no, this no is other I just want to add in, he, he had four friends that landed right next to him in the park there. So I don't think they were all trying to land in public square or the malls. I mean, none of this makes sense. Are they paramilitary people uh, are training for the, the big uh, social uprising that we're going to have after the election? Who knows? Let's, let's openly <laughs> speculate. <laughs> it's just, it's just a strange one. It's one of those just out of nowhere, weird stories. And, uh, I my bet is is that Adam Faris, who's been reporting on this, will come up with a couple of more interesting details as time goes on. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What percentage of Ohio school children will go back to their school buildings full time when the academic year begins? At least as of yesterday, Jane Cahoon, school after school, has been pulling back from the idea of being in the school buildings. They're going to go with remote learning, many of them, for the beginning of the school year because they're afraid of the coronavirus. Mike DeWine and his team kind of collated everything across the state, provided some interesting numbers in a briefing yesterday. So what do we know? Well, we know that 325 school districts plan to return on a five-day plan. There are a little over 600 school districts in the state, but that represents about 38% of public school students. Uh, 55 districts plan to begin remotely, or about 25.6% of the students, and 154 school districts are planning for some kind of hybrid model, and that accounts for 245 Five of the public school population. And there's still, as of yesterday, there were still like 78 school districts that didn't submit data. Now, this doesn't include private or parochial schools, though, so we're, so we're not sure about those. And it doesn't really reflect how the hybrid plans are exactly, you know, going to work, you know, which grade levels would be at home while others would be in person or what days of the week, et cetera. This continues to be a moving target. I mean, just this week, Bay Village decided that they would start remotely after planning a hybrid situation. Uh, District after district has been pulling back from this idea. I'm not sure, based on the briefing yesterday, if I were a school administrator, whether I would continue to go to school. The purpose of the briefing, they had the leaders (laughs) of children's hospitals come on and talk about how you could be safe. And they talked about this bizarro 15 minute rule where if you're if you're doing things and it's no longer than 15 minutes, you'll be safe. But at the very end, they said, you know, and of course, we have great uncertainty here because we have no experience with this. We don't know how it's going to work. And DeWine rang in and said, but, you know, Indiana is going to open before us. So I'm going to watch and see what happens there. <laughs> if I were a school administrator in Ohio, the tail end of that would have scared me to death. And I yeah. would be pulling the kids back because you're, to say we have great uncertainty about what's going to happen means you are gambling with children's lives. Okay, now we'll we'll make a moment for Laura Johnson <laughs> to weigh in with the parents' perspective. This is what I, I, I was 
talking in our team's channel yesterday while that doctor was talking, saying she was biased towards sending kids back to school if it could be done safely. And she was saying these are all the reasons it can be done safely. Uh, the masking, the distance, the cleaning. She was saying she would put her own kids on a school bus. So they were talking, uh, you know, like they believed that the ideas they had put in place would protect children. But they also were pretty realistic saying that if you have community spread, it's going to be spread in schools. So if you want to keep it out of the schools, you need to keep it out of the community. And what I found really interesting about those numbers that Jane just went through is that the vast majority of school districts in Ohio are planning full-time five days back at school. But those are the small probably rural districts, right? I mean, it's a small number that is going back remotely, but a large number of kids. So it seems like the bigger your school district is, the more likely you're going remote. Well, and there's a new wrinkle. There's a study out overnight that shows that the coronavirus can be aerosolized. They, there was a test that found live virus in the air. I think it was 16 feet away from a patient in a hospital which they say is the smoking gun that says that six foot thing is poppycock. Oh, the six foot, the six, you don't have to quarantine unless you're six feet for 15 minutes. I was like, what? That seems <laughs> awfully long. And the then other the other thing story, they, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, the, the other thing I thought was weird, we we're talking about uncertainty where they talked about this 15 minutes. They admitted that, okay, if it's less than 15 minutes, but then you know, this happens like multiple times a day. Right. We're not really sure, you know, what. <laughs> we're not sure of anything. Or then we had another story on Cleveland.com yesterday that said those neck gaiters um, that kids are wearing as masks are like worse than not wearing masks. Oh. I was like, oh, that's great. But but, get, but getting back to the doctor, they even said, you know, we, we don't have any experience, but we have the experience elsewhere. Like in Israel, we saw they went back to schools and everybody got sick immediately. But, you know, they closed their windows. And, and they did took some off their things. masks because it so, was hot. So we've learned not to do that. But it, but all I'm hearing is you have no earthly clue what's going to happen when you bring these kids back. And it's the kids. I It's just there, there was a time, I think, in America where if there was any risk to a child, you wouldn't do it. But, but you know, they were there to say, I would send my kids in. <laughs> It's you don't going think to be kids are going to like sit on the school bus facing forward at <laughs> all times. Right. right. They're not going to touch each other at all. I'm yeah. Crazy. And they're going to wear their masks all day. Well, we'll see if the numbers that DeWine provided yesterday hold up because I do believe districts will be doing some different things in the next weeks. They've continued to review it. It's this week in the CLE. What is the Cuyahoga County Citizens Advisory Council on Equity, which met for the first time Tuesday? And what does County Executive Armin Budish want it to do? Laura Johnson, this group has some pretty big goals, and it also has quite an august group of people on it. What What is happening with this? What's the purpose? Yeah, there are 17 members who met virtually for the first time yesterday. They hashed out um, some procedural details. They chose Eddie Taylor Jr., the president of Taylor Oswald LLC, as the chair. And they um, are doing the most important work that the county is doing, is what Armin Budish uh, put it. Uh, they're mandated by the county council's declaration of racism as a public health crisis. County council passed that in July. And by year's end, they plan to issue a report recommending ways to reduce racial disparities in the county. Um, they've tentatively planned to focus on racial inequities in economic issues, health care, juvenile and adult criminal justice, county policies, county 
procurement, which is buying things, and safe spaces in which to live and thrive. They're going to finalize those in the in the next couple of weeks, but their goal is to better understand how health issues in one area affect outcomes in other areas and how they're all interdependent. Okay, so you know we're a nation that's had 250 years of racism, and and this is a very noble effort with a good group of people. But and some of the committee members raised this yesterday. Are they really supposed to solve racism in six months? <laughs> right. Just one group, 17 people, six months, they can do it. No, I mean, it is a massive undertaking, but they can at least look at the county's policies and what they're doing and see small steps to start to address that. And, you know, they don't have to solve the issue in six months. They're just going to have to put out a report that looks at ways they could possibly get there. You know, there are people that would look at this and and be skeptical and say they're just doing this because of the social unrest. But the people that have been chosen for this committee are not the kind to stay quiet if they feel like their their recommendations are being ignored. They're pretty, pretty solid citizens. So this looks like a legitimate effort to try and get to the heart of some of the issues that have been raised in a big way this year. We'll have to keep track of how it goes and salute the county council and Darman Budish for putting it together. It's this week in the CLE. The number of guns being seized from carry-on luggage at airports is skyrocketing. What are the numbers and why are they increasing, Chris Warnowski? Oh, the government. They're finally taking our guns. What's going on? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were warned. We were warned. No, uh and I, I guess this was staggering. Like I, I had no idea that this that this number had had jumped so dramatically. But I guess compared to last year, at the, during the same time frame, the amount of guns seized at airports has tripled from 5.1 million from the same time frame in 2019 to 15.3 million guns seized at American airports. The breakdown for our airport here, uh, we had. Seven, including two in July, have been seized at Cleveland Hopkins compared uh, with 26 last year. And it's it's weird because nobody like who's flying and who who is like well, that, actually, I have a theory about this. Right. Because okay. because most normal people are not flying because they don't okay. want to get the coronavirus. But the nut jobs the you know, the mask, the mask nuts and they're, they're flying. And, you know, is there a greater chance that, that that crazy people are likely to have guns in their luggage? I thought you were, this is Laura Dutch, I thought you were allowed to have a gun if you were crazy. Like, that's the rule, right? <laughs> yeah, that never happens. First of all, to the mental health community, I would like to say sorry for the use of the terms nut jobs and crazy on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, but, but, yeah, I think this, I think this actually does go back to an actual serious issue, though, because we... We talk about responsible gun ownership all the time in this country. You know, we always hear about the responsible gun owner, the responsible gun owner. And we talk about it framed in terms of there's good gun owners and there's bad gun owners. But what we don't talk about is where these quote unquote bad gun owners get their guns, which is they're usually stolen from quote unquote good gun owners who are horribly responsible with securing their guns and completely irresponsible about th doing things like taking them into airports. And most of the time, like most of the time when we, cause we've written about, you know, I mean, we had a prominent Cleveland attorney take a gun through an airport you know, got, got in trouble. And, and usually what happens is, is, is people pack it in a bag for a, like a driving trip. Like they take it somewhere 
And then when they fly, they forget to take it out of the bag or they, you know, it's most of the time. I, I would say yeah, most people are not nine percent yeah. of the time. Most people are not trying to get a gun on an airplane. It's because it's usually just afterthought. But again, you fail. It's, it's a if gun. You try, it's a, they're gonna they're gonna find it. I mean, they're pretty right. good at that. Right. But the fact that it's an afterthought is what a lot of you know anti gun advocates point to sometimes when we talk about the gun issue, which is okay. You hold yourself up as being responsible, but you forgot you had this in a bag. You know, do you forget this in a bag when it's laying around and your kid has access to it? You know, it's, it's, it goes back to this notion and, and this sort of fairy tale idea that like there's good people with guns and bad people with guns. And it's like, yeah, a lot of quote unquote responsible people are also kind of dopes. And but, but the idea that it is the irresponsible people that, that have the guns accidentally in their bags and that the ratio of that has gone up so high, it, it well, does kind of fit it's, because it's a I matter of numbers. Most- but think about it. I mean, so many people, so many more people are armed, you know, I mean, you had this massive movement, especially on the right of arming themselves under Obama. I mean, like the inner, like nothing was better for gun manufacturers than Barack Obama being president. So gun sales went up. Now you have people who are on the left who are like, well, maybe this right wing coup that is taking place, I should arm myself. So you have, you have more people, you know, states like Ohio have made it easy to, you know, to, you know, have a gun just pretty much anywhere. So you're seeing this normalization of guns in everyday life and in public. And, and so, you know, as it becomes normalized, I think it becomes easier to just walk around with it and forget that you have it. And, and, and I mean, the yeah. triple, that's a, yeah. that's a, just a huge jump. So, yeah. All right. We'll have to see if it continues once people return to the skies when the coronavirus ends. It's this mm-hmm. week in the CLE. The number of states you can't visit without self quarantining when you return to Ohio has fallen. So, what is the current list? And can Ohioans now go to New York without quarantining when they get there? Jane Cahoon, this was news in the governor's briefing about the coronavirus on Tuesday. What was it? So six states are affected by this revised Ohio um, travel advisory. So if you travel from one of these six states into Ohio or, or back to Ohio, they're recommending, they're not requiring that you self-quarantine for 14 days. Those states are Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. All of those states have coronavirus positivity testing rates that are above 15%, ranging from like 17% in Idaho to 26% in Mississippi. So that's what they're asking. Now, New York's been a little stricter, you know, requiring these quarantines and now that Ohio's seven-day average of positivity is is um, about five percent, that means we're now allowed to visit New York without being required to to quarantine. We were one of five states removed from their advisory on Tuesday. The others that that got off the list were Alaska, New Mexico, Rhode Island, and Washington. And then they added South Dakota and Hawaii, along with the Virgin Islands. You know, early on in the uh, coronavirus, there was some fascinating data released about comparing the states on how people were staying home using cell phone movement. Uh, Ohio was doing really well. Other states, people were not staying home. They weren't they weren't following the rules. I'd, I'd be interested to see if you could use that data 
to see if Ohioans who go to Las Vegas or go to Florida, when they return to Ohio, stay home. Or if when Ohioans were going to New York before this, whether they quarantined for 14 days, you would think the data could show that because I, I just I'm not buying that a lot of people follow that, that they might intend to. But then, you know, they run out of milk and they have to go to the grocery store. And so they violate the quarantine. Um, I wonder how hard it would be to get that kind of data to see if this self-quarantining advice gets followed at all. I don't know. I think a lot of people would think that's an invasion of privacy to get that kind of data. But who knows? Well, they did it in large, large enough numbers where nobody was identifiable. And it was very illuminating. I mean, it was, you know, and as you expect, Ohio was filled with largely law abiding people. And so when they were told, you know, stay home, except for absolute necessities, they did. Um, I just would love to see if you could break that down into people who come into Ohio from those states. Are they are they following the the instructions? You would think that DeWine and company would want to know that. So this week in the CLE. What is the holdup in the $3 million small business loan program that Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson and City Council launched to help largely small companies harmed by the coronavirus? Laura Johnston, there was some disappointment expressed by some city council members yesterday about the slow pace of this thing. Yeah, apparently the issue is paperwork. Jackson's administration um, announced the first round of loans up to $10,000 on May 19th, and they began distributing checks within the last two weeks, but only 45 of the 113 businesses have apparently completed the paperwork needed to comply with local, state, and federal requirements. So city council members are frustrated. Um, This uses $3 million of nearly $30 million in a program uh, with city development money and federal aid. And the council members are really worried that the money is going to get there too late, that these businesses will go under by the time they get the, the money. And so Kevin Kelly and I, I think a bunch of other council members spoke to Bob Higgs about very specific stores in their communities that they are worried are going to go out of business. Yeah, the carnage on small business of the, of the pandemic. We won't know it for, for a while, but I, I'll bet it's it takes a long time to recover. Mike Polensic was talking about his East 185th Street district and you know, he believes that what he's seeing there with businesses closing up is being repeated across the city. I think he said he has had one loan approved in his entire word. He's the North Collinwood guy. We'll have to see if they speed it up. The people do have to fill out the paperwork, though. I mean, you can't just give them money without them dotting the I's and crossing the T's. It's this week in the CLE. All right, guys. Well, we had some technical difficulties. So if people notice today that the sound changed about 10 minutes into the podcast, we fixed the technical difficulties. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> so, for the better. That's the thing. You, you, you probably, nobody would have noticed. And then you pointed it out. So people are going to. Yeah, now they're, they're going to go back and re-listen to all of yeah, us. Right? Okay. Be like, <laughs> I think it was a pretty dramatic change of sound for Chris and me because of our technical inabilities. All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening to this week in the CLE. We'll be be back with another episode tomorrow. 